If only life had a remote control, you could pause or rewind. Well, life doesn't always give you time to change the outcome, but pre-diabetes does. Take the one-minute risk test today at doihaveprediabetes.org. Brought to you by the Ad Council and its pre-diabetes awareness partners. Coming up on Money Beat, been a roller coaster ride down in Washington, D.C. How has that affected the M&A market, mergers and acquisitions? That is what we're going to be talking about next. This is Money Beat from the Wall Street Journal. Now from our studios in New York, here are Paul Vigna and Stephen Grosser. Welcome to Money Beat. I am Paul Vigna. I'm Stephen Grosser, and we're here to talk about a, a subject that is near and dear to my heart. I always love mergers and acquisitions. You do. You love the M&A talk. Uh, and to help us discuss M&A, we have our dear friend and colleague, Marie Bidette. Marie, how are you? Good. How are you? I'm doing well. And on the phone, we are joined by, and this is why this is a special podcast, folks. We have a special guest for you today. William Curtin is a partner at the Washington, D.C. office of the law firm, law firm, law firm, law firm Hogan Lovells, and he is the global head of the M&A group there. Uh, Bill, how are you? Doing great. Pleasure to be with you guys. Yeah. Listen, we are glad to have you here. I, I, right off the bat, just because you said the title, Global Head, this uh, the first quarter seemed to be actually a good quarter to have the title Global, given the amount of, you know, there's a real uptick in cross-border M&A. I guess first, if you could just talk about the reasons for that, and, and is also, was that a reflection in confidence in the global economy that, you know, the sort of corporate dealmakers are having? Well, I think it's right. I mean, and first of all, let me just join the chorus of saying that I love M&A, too. It's what, uh, it's what we do, those of us who practice in the area, do kind of seven days a week and spend a lot of time on airplanes and moving around, moving around the global arena. But definitely right. I mean, we look at the first quarter that just closed. In terms of the value of transactions that were accomplished in the cross-border global marketplace, we saw the highest level since 2007, almost 50% of the M&A that was executed during the first quarter of this year was cross-border M&A, which is really significant, a significant data point to, to observe. And I think it is a reflection of the confidence that market principals and business leaders enjoy right now. I mean, people have looked at the U.S. President Trump's economic agenda and felt the strengthening of the dollar and the improvement in the capital markets positions as real opportunities to invest outside the United States because assets and possibilities outside the United States became cheaper uh, than some of the possibilities inside the United States. And of course, CEOs in the C-suite themselves were buoyed by the confidence they saw as they saw their own companies' stock performance rise and the marketplace react very well to cross-border M&A. So it it almost feeds itself. It becomes a very momentum-driven experience, and one of, one of course, that I love. One, I guess the question, like, we'll just get right into Trump, which is another favorite topic on, the, on this <laughs> podcast. But more, more about his policies. We've seen in the market there the uncertainty around the policies has grown. The market is sort of stalled on its run-up. How much is uncertainty going to play a role in whether, you know, you know, CEOs decide to pull the trigger on doing deals, especially when you don't know what your taxes are going to look like in a year. You don't know what health costs are going to maybe look like, um, you know, and you don't know what regulation is going to look like broadly. Is, is that going to be a restricting, at least in the short term, a restricting factor on people closing deals? 
Well, uncertainty is spot on. Uncertainty is definitely not M&A's friend. M&A and transacting, getting transactions done and non-organic growth thrive in circumstances where there is certainty, effectively where there's predictability. And that predictability ties to the markets, to the business climate, and what we do as lawyers to the legal regimes that allow CEOs to believe with confidence that a transaction will actually come to pass. So uncertainty is not a friend. We know that President Trump had outlined for the U.S. marketplace and, of course, still the global arena watching very closely the U.S., a prioritization of working on health care first, tax, corporate tax particularly, and then infrastructure spending in seriatim, in order. Of course, health care suffered a pretty significant hiccup. And so now all eyes are on what will happen with the corporate tax policies, and will infrastructure spending actually follow this autumn? I think it's, there, there is something to be said for certain market participants sitting back and watching to see where the corporate tax policies and principles of this administration take them. But I do believe that most business leaders expect only good news in that arena. And because they expect only good news in that arena, I am not in the camp of believing that we're at levels of uncertainty today that will impede or inhibit the continuing forward march of what have been a pretty remarkable M&A run for the last couple of years. One thing you, you mentioned, the the huge increase in cross-border transactions, but it seems to be like more muted in the U.S. still. Um, do you think that there is still like this lingering uncertainty, especially around taxes um, and what a, a tax reform might look like is having an effect on that? Or do you think that the volume of, of U.S. Um, M&A deals is still is still pretty healthy under the circumstances? I think, Marie, it's still pretty healthy given the circumstances. I think you just the way it is. I think the fact that cross-border M&A has taken such a, uh, you know, quickened in its step and its growth and its climb shouldn't suggest that the U.S. M&A market is suffering. The U.S. M&A market is still healthy, as you put it. I do believe there's a segment of executives who, if you had a disposal plan in the boardroom and you had transactions immediately in front of you, you might slow them just a bit, right, to wait to see where this administration's tax policy comes out. Because if, particularly if you're a seller for cash, you would like to know about how much of that cash will actually be retained post-transaction as net purchase price proceeds. So eyes are open and attention is focused in Washington on Washington right now to see where that goes. But it's just as you put it, it's not to an extent because people are embedding into their expectations good news from the Trump administration, pro-business tax policies, it's not to a level where, it is, where the U.S. M&A market is actually suffering. I continue to expect, and I think the first quarter reflected, uh, a healthy market here in the United States for M&A. Yeah, you know, one thing I'm interested in getting your opinion on, Bill, and here's to Marie, is, is kind of looking at this over, say, the last six months, right? Go back to October before the election when most people thought Hillary Clinton was going to win, then Trump wins, and he comes in with everyone expects is going to be this pro-business agenda, and taxes are high on that, and then you get health care, and then they say, well, health care didn't happen, but taxes are going to happen. And and now, you know, they promised by August, and now it looks like August. And, you know, what, 
What's been the sort of sentiment in the M&A industry as these waves have kind of come through Washington and washed over uh, the industries? You know, like you you talk about uncertainty. I mean, you know, it's it's almost like getting getting whiplash kind of seeing what's happening down in Washington. How has that kind of affected the sentiment the last six months or so? It's fun to have hiccups, right? But you still engage in conversation even when you have them. It's not a lot of fun. And these have been... You know, I don't mean to minimize what happened on health care. That was clearly a setback for the administration. And there's no question that it makes it more complex to accomplish meaningful corporate tax reform because of the relationship, right, the economy and the way it works with health care being such a significant component of the economy. And so I, I guess we could look at it almost the inverse. Imagine if health care had gone through more smoothly, if the timing and the process and the result had been kind of a more um, – um, predictable and more more in the form of actually something coming out on the other side of the process where well, we would really feeling even more wind at our backs, those of us who enjoy the M&A, M&A um, uh, arena. The fact that healthcare didn't get done, um, I don't think will be enough. I think it'll be a hic- hiccup and a, a, something of a speed bump, but I don't think it'll be enough to inhibit just the remarkable, um, the strong fundamentals we see among our company clients. These are companies that really, as you guys know, and I've enjoyed listening to you comment up to this effect, these companies enjoy strong balance sheets by a large. They, they have access to low cost of capital, right? They have, um, they have a marketplace that has, by and large, looking at the stock market, uh, rewarded CEOs who have engaged in non-organic growth. And so I find in my company, my strategics, my company clients, they're very facile at adjusting to the ongoing political and regulatory changes that occur over the course of the past year. We had Brexit last year, right? Right. Even with Brexit happening to the United Kingdom, we have cross-border M&A significantly up in the first quarter of 2017. These market players are pretty savvy about how to navigate regulatory hurdles and political hiccups and speed bumps. I think the momentum is still at our backs. One thing I, I think um, is worth watching, and I'm really curious what you think about this too, Bill, is what happens the next time two U.S. companies propose a deal that would result in a lot of job cuts? Yeah. Um, mm. That, you know, obviously that's been a huge part of Trump's agenda is keeping jobs right. in the U.S. And he's gone, you know, he's like going to companies and trying, you know, trying to persuade them to keep jobs in the U.S. and not move them overseas. I'm wondering what... What it will look like when, if we saw a deal of that sort, where there's a lot of a, a lot of cost cutting and a lot of jobs lost, and um, you know, it could be an interesting test for the market, and it might actually might just be an interesting to see if companies are like. I'm curious if companies are saying, you know what, maybe this isn't the time to attempt that kind of a deal because of who the president is. Maybe, maybe not. Maybe that's maybe that's not happening. But I'm, yeah. I'm we haven't really seen one yet, so I'm right, curious. What, right. No, that'll definitely be interesting. Yeah, I agree. Look, there's two things in the morning the CEO doesn't really want to enjoy with his or her coffee, right? One is to somehow see uh, his or her company's name in a tweet. And the second thing that he or she doesn't really want to have to engage in to start the day is any form of 
headcount reduction in the United States or synergy exploration or rationalization in a way that could be perceived by the White House as um, um, uh, inhibiting uh, the president's ability to make America great again. Those are two things that are not high on the agenda of our C-suite friends. But but I think if they look, as as people look at horizontal transactions, right, with with other companies that offer similar or at least compatible products, you're absolutely right, Marie. I think the, the, the messaging that we will see is less about rationalization and headcounts and even carefully scripted dialogue around synergies. And really, it'll be more about how these companies are increasing revenue through horizontal transactions without having to invest more resources or more time, but leveraging the know-how of the companies with which they are transacting. That will be art, not science, I think, in terms of how CEOs and business leaders navigate their desire to pursue, as I believe, continuing non-organic growth while staying away from some of the sensitive areas and words that could end up making the start of the day less pleasant. All right, let's uh, take a break. We'll be back with more on the M&A front. We are talking with Marie Boudet, our, our own, the Journal's own, and we are also talking with William Curtin from the law firm Hogan Lovells. We'll be back right after this message. If only life had a remote control, you could pause or rewind. Well, life doesn't always give you time to change the outcome, but prediabetes does. Take the one-minute risk test today at doihaveprediabetes.org. Brought to you by the Ad Council and its prediabetes awareness partners. For more insights, enable the Wall Street Journal skill on any device with Amazon Alexa. Get all of our podcasts, as well as the latest news and market updates. WSJ Podcasts. Listen ambitiously. Now, back to the show. Welcome back to Money Beat. Paul and Steve in the studio today talking about the M&A market. We are speaking with William Curtin from the law firm of Hogan Lovells and also our own, the Wall Street Journal's own, Marie Boudet. Uh, Marie, how are you? I'm okay. How are you? I'm okay. I'm okay. Grocer, how are you? I'm great. Getting over the cold. You are. I'm yeah. glad, glad to hear it. Glad you're doing well. Um, Bill, I wanted to get back to what we were talking about in horizontal deals, and I'm going to use a phrase that I probably – I'm going to get made fun of later for using, but animal spirits. I mean, M&A <laughs> – his time no, to right animal now. spirits. <laughs> Although but, that wasn't where I thought it was going. No, no, but, uh, but uh, bear with me for a minute. I mean, like, we've seen a real uptick in M&A. We, like 2015 was around a record year, right. depending on how many uh, M&A deals actually <laughs> fell apart or not. And, you know, last year was a strong year. 2014 was a strong year. We're off to another strong year this year um, in terms of deal volume. But a lot of these deals have been the safest kind of deals. You hit on it. Um, before the they're the horizontal deals where through synergies and grabbing market share you're able to grow your revenue and and they make a, they made sense in a, a sort of global economy where you're only seeing two percent growth and it's really hard to grow your business but when are like you know first question do you start to, do you think we're seeing the animal spirits sort of pick up among corporate executives are they looking to do more transformational deals? Um, from your conversational conversations, and how has this, um, you know, this the wave of M and A that has reduced the, you know, sort of a lot of our our sectors to only a few major players 
impacted sort of regulate regulatory approvals and just you know what your job I guess well it's uh, right on point in terms of what we're experiencing in the m a arena I mean the first point is Note well that when we look at the uptick and the nice slope that we've all observed and many of us have enjoyed promoting in terms of M&A, it's been more, particularly in 2017, on the volume of transactions than simply looking at um, the bulge bracket high-level values, right? There's fewer in the first quarter of 2017 of the kind of blockbuster mega deals, you know, the 20, 30, 40, 50 billion dollar transactions that get done that uh, an investor or an observer would look at and say, gee, on its face, that feels and looks like a transformational, what many call bet the company transaction. There are fewer of those that are happening, I think in part, rightly noted, uh, because there's a bit of political and regulatory uncertainty. When the president says, let's make America great again, what does that mean in terms of national security interests of the United States? Does it mean that non-U.S. market participants in the United States will be less welcome? Still to be determined. How will the FTC and the DOJ kind of exert their responsibilities in the antitrust forum with these mega transactions so you know that we've like seen AT&T in the tech sector in the past like AT&T and DirecTV was a perfect example I mean how was the reaction to he tweeted about you know oh, I'm not so sure about that deal Everybody observed that tweet, I can assure you, and everybody has kept eyes wide open on where transactions of that scale will go, right, with antitrust review. And that will, I think, signal significantly what will come thereafter in terms of market confidence and the and the prevalence of the animal spirits right that that drive so much of m a right and m a is about a lot of strategy a lot of thought and analysis but it is never without gut instinct right and 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 levels of confidence and the like so 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 i do think that people will watch the regulatory environment my observation is that the leaders of business will look to advisors to help navigate rather than retreat or shrink from future opportunities because of regulatory and political developments. I think there's too much now around the strength of fundamentals of business and the globalization of business and low cost of capital to really slow down the M&A train. And then I'll just say one other thing. In terms of industries and what we're seeing out there, I was asked at one point about um, the various industries and which ones would be most prevalent in the coming months, and I actually answered by saying one industry, and that would be technology. Whether you're in healthcare, whether you're in transportation, whether you're in communication, technology today is so omnipresent in the M&A markets and such a driver that it has become right the, the industry in vogue, if you will, pushing us forward on the M&A front. We've definitely seen that on the buyout side. Um, private equity firms have been buying, have been very active buyers of tech companies, software as a service companies, and um, the like for the past couple of years. Are they? And you've seen them also, which is interesting, bundle up like those, you know, those software as service companies, a lot of times. But they also, it it strikes me as it's almost a safe bet because you have these behemoth tech companies with tons of cash that are willing acquirers down the road. Um, for these businesses as well. 
Yeah, yeah, definitely. And they, they, the, the, the businesses are seen as stable cash generators that you can take some costs out of and, you know, make, you know, sell down the line for a profit. And probably to some of those big giant companies that haven't been like actively making acquisitions in recent years. However, uh, you know, I would follow Marie's point because that's, isn't that an interesting phenomenon as well? The extent to which what we would think of as traditional industrial or traditional manufacturing companies, particularly in the United States, right, Marie, morphing into the software and the technology space. Increasingly, you see, again, across industries, healthcare, transportation, consumer products, the deals that we increasingly see getting done, particularly driving the volume of, of up, uptick of M&A, are in this technology. Their talent acquisitions, their technology acquisitions, often on the software side and the like, it's a it's a remarkable phenomenon as you even drive through Silicon Valley in the Bay Area and you look left and right and you see one after another of these traditional kind of industrial manufacturing giants putting flags down in the valley as they go after more technology and talent. Yeah, that's a that's a great point. It's definitely we've definitely seen a lot of that. Um one of the interesting uh examples of that that it's kind of a little different but it uh, I'll make the point. Um, this the fight at Arconic to replace the CEO of Arconic that Elliot's waging right now the proxy fight there. It's a company that was a you know an, an aluminum producer that separated out its aluminum business and now is now is ma- like a maker of high tech parts for airplanes and such. So now you have this completely different company that's trying to be like the next generation of whatever of everything. Um, and there's a fight over like should should that be should those should that company be doing that? Um, you know, should it just stick to like manufacturing aluminum parts, or should it be like looking into the future of what you know what what the next generation right. of airplanes well, is going to look they like? They did look into the future, and yeah, that's why they're doing it. Yeah, so I think that that's a really great point about like old industrial companies looking to to sort of reinvent themselves. I well, guess. yesterday's news, right? Yesterday's news. The highest by market capitalization valued automotive company in the world right. is not GM. It's not Daimler. It's not Ford. It's Tesla. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And Tesla is a company that has run losses in the hundreds of millions of dollars. Right, right. Of course, yeah, AutoNation CEO. We're getting on a tangent now, but yeah, uh, AutoNation CEO had some interesting things to say about that, about Tesla taking that, that crown. So. You can go look it up, folks. I'm not going to. It's just not. Uh, I had one one question. Just kind of, I wanted to ask Bill, just get your take on, you know, look, we, we know the Fed wants to raise rates. We know the Fed wants to normalize. What is, um, what, what's the sense of, and Marie weighing on this too, you know, I mean, what, what does financing for deals look like? I mean, is the money still really kind of flowing freely? Are people worried about it? Still really easy to, you know, uh, issue debt or whatever? I mean, what's just kind of the general state of, of that right now? Well, Marie, you want me to follow you? Or? No, go ahead. So I would say there's two parts to the financing piece. I'm glad it, you know, it's – one is the availability of capital, right? And then the other side is the soundness of the borrowers, right, and their financial profile and condition. And I still believe there's check marks on both sides of that equation, if you will. I, I point well taken about uh, the Fed's activities expected as – many would say, but I believe that there will cost of capital will not be come in the near term anywhere near a level that feels um, 
difficult or, or punitive in any way. And I, and I think that the strength of the fundamentals of, 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 of companies today and the position that their balance sheets demonstrate uh, that, that they enjoy um, is such that I think that the, 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 the liquidity and the financing that's necessary to execute, um, to execute non-organic growth will be there. And, this, and this, their stocks are, you know, by large at all-time highs. I mean, you know, the S&P right. is up 10% still this year. I'll just mention one thing that got a lot of attention earlier this month was at the Tulane M&A conference when Kurt Simon, the head of M&A at J.P. Morgan, said he thinks we're not that far off from seeing a $100 billion all-cash deal because borrowers can can take advantage of the low rates and, wow. you know. Get. Especially, like, you know, I mean, it doesn't necessarily have to come at the tech space, but, I mean, you look at how much cash is on some of these balance sheets. Yeah. I mean, well, and yeah. we know that the street does not appreciate excess ca- cash on balance sheets, yeah. right? So the C-suite, in circumstances where you have an abundance of cash, it's well understood that it's better to put it to work uh, in the right circumstances. So yeah, I was with you in Tulane and heard Kurt, and I, um, and, and, and I think uh, everybody kind of nodded vertically in amazement at the real possibility of that happening. Wow. All right. Uh, wait, isn't Tulane in New Orleans? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's real tough. You guys had to go to New Orleans to the conference. Hey, I didn't go. Oh, I'm just – I, I, I wasn't – yeah, you they, didn't don't, they didn't send me. Oh, okay. <laughs> I, I just I read think, about I it. think David went for, what, the fourth or fifth year straight year? I'm getting a little yeah. bit jealous of him. Yeah, <laughs> totally. And next time, Marie, you, you can, uh, you, you know, the, the, you see all the, 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 the excitement that can get generated out of New Orleans around M&A. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. All right. William Curtin is a partner at the Washington, D.C. office of Hogan Lovells. He is global head of uh, the M&A group down there. Bill, thank you for coming on today. Really do appreciate it. It's been my pleasure. All right, Marie, thanks for taking a little time out of your day to come on with us. Thanks for having me. And everyone, thanks for taking a little time out of your day to listen, and we'll catch up with you soon. WSJ Podcasts. Listen ambitiously.